the new channel. The new channel. Hashtag TNC now. The views, opinions, and insights expressed in the following shows are those of the hosts, producers, guests, and viewers. They do not necessarily reflect the position of the channel. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the new channel. Our passion transforms a community that sees all things new. I'm Alpha Sanford, streaming live from Boston, Massachusetts. Good morning, good evening, Mabuhai. You are watching Once a Teacher, Always a Teacher, Season 1. And can you believe it? It's episode 12. Can you believe it? We are now on episode 12. And for today's episode, um, we are going to have two powerful doctors who are going to share their knowledge and wisdom on the most talked about topic of the last few years, COVID-19. All right. So I want to know that you're here with us today, teachers, educators, school leaders, and Filipino citizens around the world. If you are here with us today, please plug in your names, your locations. And if you have like burning questions when it comes to COVID-19, please put it in the comment section so that maybe uh, later or throughout this conversation that we're going to be having with these two amazing doctors, we will read them and we will ask them your questions. All right. So let's see. Before we bring in our, our guest today, I'm going to tell you that 
Um, I am so impressed with their accomplishments. Um, we're very lucky because uh, uh, we're neighbors with them. So just imagine, oh my gosh, they're rubbing off their um, intelligence to us, right? And the fact that we could text or I could text them and ask a question here and there about COVID, that's a privilege, right? So I wanna take this privilege that I have to all of you today and see what we can learn from them, all right? But before I bring them in, I am going to introduce to you who are our guests for today. Let's start off with Dr. Ann Liu. So Dr. Ann Liu um, has uh, uh, three years being a fellow, and I'm just going to read real, real quickly um, her bio. Uh, her three years as a fellow in gastroenterology, hepatology, and advanced endoscopy at Brigham and Women's Hospital has deepened her commitment to innovative medical education. Her work with Dr. Helen Shields in that particular area has resulted in well-received workshops and conferences, such as the Harvard-MIT Communication Skills Workshop. She's got a lot of other experiences, but what I would want to highlight to all of you is this one. Dr. Ann is also engaged in several, several viral hepatitis B and C research projects. I really don't know those, but uh, you know, I think those are really awesome projects. But those includes identifying the risk factors for difficult to treat hepatitis C virus, genotype 4R in Rwanda, and implications for elimination in sub-Saharan Africa, resulting in recent publications. Um, so uh, she's continuing her efforts to improve healthcare through innovative education um, at both Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. So isn't that quite impressive? Now, I'm going to also introduce to you her husband. Okay, so folks, these are powerful husband and wife team. They're both doctors. And her husband is Dr. Pranay Sinha. Let me read to you his equally impressive bio. Dr. Pranay Sinha is an infectious diseases physician. He received his medical degree at the University of Virginia and completed residency at Yale University, where he received a distinction in global health equity. He then completed his subspecialty training in infectious diseases at the Boston Medical Center where he currently works as a physician investigator. He is currently completing a master's degree in health policy and management at Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Sinha was involved in developing COVID treatment protocols at Boston Medical Center, and his primary interest is tuberculosis, TB. He has field experiences in India and South Africa. So if that did not impress you, I don't know. So folks, if you're here again and you have burning questions about the COVID-19, plug them in because I think Dr. Ann and Dr. Pranay are the closest that we've got uh, to Dr. Fauci, right? America's uh, doctor when it comes to COVID. So without further ado, let's bring in this uh, powerful doctors who are also husband and wife. 
Hi, Dr. Ian. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for the such kind introduction, Alpha. That was very generous. <laughs> it's not being generous. It's the real truth. Very impressive. So thank you. Thanks for being with us today. All right. So shall we get going when it comes to What's that? Yes, All right. <laughs> All right, so shall we get going in terms of our questions? We have a lot of questions for you. All right, so let's just, yeah, awesome. Um, so let's, let's do our first question here. The first question is, we hear a lot about the Omicron variant and also the BA2 variant. Can you tell us a bit more about it? And is it actually milder than the previous versions? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a great question and something that we're all um, really interested in right now. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, coronaviruses are RNA viruses and RNA viruses just mutate very readily because they're uh, their RNA replicating mechanism is not it's not very good. It keeps making mistakes, and that's that's what allows these viruses to mutate. Uh, and so influenza is actually another RNA virus, and it mutates every year, which is why we need to give new shots for influenza every single year. So viruses can mutate at a very slow, steady rate, but they can also have these like very dramatic changes. Um, and so the origins of Omicron remain kind of fuzzy. Some people think, oh, it may have happened because uh, there may have been somebody who was immunosuppressed and they were infected with the coronavirus, lived in their body for months, and it evolved into this new variant. Other people think that it may have jumped out of humans into an animal species where it sort of mutated into a new form and came right back into humans. And again, this is something that we know from influenza uh, influenza can do the same kind of thing. Uh, that's why you have the swine flu and bird flu because it jumps from humans to, to pigs and, and birds mutates and comes back to us. And so that's probably how Omicron, uh, you know, these are the two leading ideas about how Omicron emerged. But in any case, it, it came in around Thanksgiving. That's when uh, South African scientists started reporting it um, because they are just excellent at doing sequencing and were being very thoughtful. Um, and uh, basically, there are lots of mutations in the spike protein. The spike protein is what helps the virus get into the cells. Um, and um, exactly. And then, and unfortunately, a lot of our um, vaccines are also targeting the spike, uh, spike protein. So the spike protein changes. Our current vaccines are not as effective. I'm not saying ineffective, but not as effective as they used to be. And so it began a lot of attention because people who were previously vaccinated or previously infected now were having reinfections or, or having those breakthrough um, infections. Um, and so Omicron is about five times more likely to cause reinfections than previous variants, essentially. Uh, and so uh, the great news, though, is that unlike Delta, which is a very deadly variant, um, uh, and that replicated in the lungs caused really, really severe disease uh, while also being very easy to spread. Uh, although Omicron can spread pretty quickly and reinfect people who are vaccinated, um, it uh, likes to stay in the upper airways. And by, by that, I mean the nose, the throat, the sinuses. So it causes more cold-like symptoms than pneumonia-like symptoms. Um, and so that's why people have been coming around to this idea that it is a, a milder infection. That said, 
you know, there's a great study out of Imperial College London last a couple of weeks ago that showed that Omicron was, there's no real evidence that Omicron was milder per se. Um, I think part of the reason this narrative of mildness has come to be has been that a lot of this, the early studies have been in younger people and people who've been vaccinated. And that's why people think that Omicron is very mild. Um, I think the best way to put it is that it is milder, but it's not mild. And, you mm-hmm. know, you have to say milder than what? Milder than Delta, which is a very deadly virus. Um, right. So, you know, it's kind of like saying that Sylvester Sloan's not very muscular. Well, yeah, compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe not, but he's still like, you know, compared to us, you know, <laughs> superhuman. <laughs> so like, I feel like that is the kind of like uh, the continuum that we're talking about here. And then, you know, I, I was on service at Boston Medical Center uh, on Christmas and New Year's Day, and I saw a lot of people coming in with Omicron. Uh, and so I would say that unvaccinated people coming in with the infection, they can still get really sick and go to the ICU. Um, so it is not to be dismissed out of hand, especially when it is uh, infecting so many people. And the number of infections have really shot through the roof uh, and broken all records. Um, and so if you've got 100,000 people who are sick, even if a very small number of them are um, are going to go to the ICU, that's still mm-hmm. a lot of people going to the ICU as compared to previous variants, maybe where maybe half the number or like a quarter of the number of people would have gotten sick to begin with. Oh, wow. Yeah. So milder than the Delta variant is the way to put it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. But Wayne. not mild. Yeah. <laughs> not mild. Not mild. Yeah. Just milder than the Delta variant. Yeah. All right. So the next question that we have here is with this recent wave, it sounds more like children are getting sick than before. And we see it in the schools, right? How sick do they get? And uh, are there any long-term implications for our children? Yeah, so this is an excellent question. Thank you, Alpha. Um, Until very recently, if there was one silver lining to the pandemic, it was that kids seemed to escape the worst of the virus. Uh, Less than 2% of the hospitalized patients were children. And take in mind, I don't mean to suggest that COVID did not harm the children per se. I mean, in fact, if you look at the data, 420 children with COVID died in the U.S., just between March 2020 and August 2021. But um, also in mind, uh, rates have really shot up in January 2022. Um, So overall, uh, during the pandemic, this is about 9.5 million children that have been infected, 20% of these just in the first two weeks of January 2022 alone. Uh, Children under five who can't yet get vaccines are being admitted two to four times the rate of previous surges. So this is scary, this is alarming. Um, But fortunately there is evidence that, uh, there's no evidence that Omicron is worse among children. In fact, the opposite is probably true. Um, So compared to Delta, uh, when Delta was surging, the hospitalization rate was about 3% for infected children, 1% for Omicron. So just to kind of put things in perspective. Um, Omicron overall is more infectious than previous variants. And if more people are infected overall, more children will also get sick. And so that's kind of like an easy way to think about it. And this explains why a disproportionate number of children are getting admitted to the hospital now. Um, Also keep in mind that the Omicron variant likes to affect the upper airways, the nose, sinuses, throat, and that gets easily blocked in children since their anatomy hasn't matured yet. And so it's more likely to affect them. 
Um, Omicron, the virus replicates about 70 times faster than Delta and makes it much easier to transmit. Uh, but the good thing is it's mostly all on the surface, in the throat, in the uh, nose, less likely in the uh, deeper in the lungs. Finally, when COVID started, a lot of children have been leading normal lives. You know, they play around, they spend time with each other, they give each other infections, like the common yeah. cold. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the viruses causing the common cold is plain old coronavirus. And so when COVID-19 first came on the scene, children had some innate resistance to it. Um, in fact, I think Pernay just wrote a paper to show that the recent coronavirus infection was protective against COVID-19. Oh wow. Um, oh wow! Yeah, um, and, and then with socially distant schooling, you know, their exposure to the mild viruses trained their immune system against COVID nineteen. But then that has slowly waned, um, and so now you know, thinking about children, about adolescents, um, they're actually susceptible to long term symptoms. Some develop brain fog. Others lose their stamina with their ability to participate in athletic activities. And we're still learning about what long COVID may look like in children as well as adults. So things that have been recorded include pain, headaches, fatigue, anxiety, depression, fever, cough, and even sleep problems. Um, in fact, one CDC study even found that an increased risk of diabetes can happen after COVID-19 infection in kids and can damage some of the insulin producing cells in our pancreas. Um, so all in all, what this means is that parents of children, especially unvaccinated children, need to be extra cautious and just try to minimize your risks as much as is possible. Oh my goodness, Ian, um, well, Dr. Ann, just by listening to all your explanation, my mind is like going to, oh my goodness, what are the things that we can do uh, You know, moving forward in terms of accommodating some of these potential long-term effect of COVID to our students. So um, as a school leader, I think uh, we need to start thinking and really connecting the work of uh, you guys, doctors, when it comes to these potential accommodations. You know, what caught me is about the brain fog and the participation of our athletes, you know, and how uh, their uh, ability to be part of the athletics uh, that they're in right now may be affected. So, you know, just thinking forward, what are the things that we can do for them right now or in the future as we move forward in terms of uh, this, uh, you know, situation? So you also mentioned about the long um, COVID. Can you tell us all about the long COVID? You know, people talk about it and things like that. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the long COVID and how can this um, affect our students? Most certainly, and that's a great response and question, follow-up question, Alpha. So the SARS-CoV-2 is a systemic disease and it has multiple avenues to induce long-term impairment, you know, attacking the brain, the heart, the lungs, the blood, uh, the colon, the liver, the lymph nodes, and it causes persistent symptoms in more than half of patients by six months out from when they're first diagnosed. So some people have severe illnesses of COVID-19 and experience multi-organ effects or autoimmune conditions that last a longer time, sometimes weeks or months. And so that's what's, why it's called long COVID because okay. of the long-term effects, especially chronic breathlessness. 
that perhaps is the most common uh, symptom of long COVID. I mean, just this week, um, a preprint suggested that this might be because the ability of oxygen to diffuse through the lungs of COVID survivors may actually be considerably reduced. Mm -hmm. And the virus even appears to cross a blood-brain barrier, and that can cause significant neurologic damage. And so this is where that brain fog comes in, long-lasting brain fog and tentatively causing problems with learning. And that's, you know, considerably um, worrisome for educators and um, school leaders like you, Alpha. Mm -hmm. um, so in, though the positive side of this silver lining is that, you know, currently, fully vaccinated participants who also had COVID-19, um, either fully vaccinated, they were 54% less likely to present with headaches, 64% less likely to report fatigue, and 68% less likely to report muscle pain compared mm -hmm. to unvaccinated counterparts. And so I wanna be clear that even vaccinated patients can get long COVID. And even those who had mild disease, meaning they didn't have to be hospitalized, can get long COVID but the effects are much milder, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And so, and to kind of summarize, like long COVID is important for educators to understand and recognize. So if your student has a post COVID condition that impacts their ability to attend school, complete schoolwork, or perform their usual activities, it may be very helpful to think about accommodations. So this is kind of like extra time on tests, scheduled rest periods throughout the day, or a modified class schedule. Learning combinations may be needed for children with post-COVID conditions, especially those experiencing thinking, concentrating, or physical difficulties in this brain fog type of situation. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, Dr. Ann, it's it's an incredible knowledge that I've learned from you just now. And again, thinking ahead, thinking ahead we really need to start planning in terms of what supports what interventions and services that we should be providing for our students. So, all right, to fellow school leaders, principals, superintendents, take note of what Dr. Ann mentioned about the effects of long-term COVID to our students, all right? Okay, now let's talk about uh, booster, booster vaccination. So do boosters do anything for Omicron? <laughs> Let's see what you got, Dr. Frenet. <laughs> well, uh, yes. So I think it's, you know, the whole vaccine debate has been so, um, so fraught. And there have been a lot of passionate people who've spoken on both sides. Um, but ultimately, you have to let the data speak. Uh, and the, the data really show us that the vaccine, uh, if you're boosted, you are 95% less likely to end up in the hospital or die. Okay. And that's huge, right? Because that's the biggest fear of this virus. I mean, the long COVID that Anne was describing is, is critical and it's important, but you can still live with it, but you don't want to die. So 95%, that's what it's really, really good at. Mm -hmm. um, if you've only had two doses, then your risk is uh, reduced by 80 to 85%, okay. which is still pretty good but like that's the, you know, you, you're having a 15% added from the booster. Now that is, but people say, well, you can still get COVID if you got boosted. And that's true. You can still get COVID if you're boosted. Um, and, uh, and this is where I sort of encourage people to sort of not think in a binary way, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because 
um, getting infected with COVID can have multiple different, you know, experiences, you know. And I, this was true even the flu shot a few years ago. I remember there was this, when I was a fellow in infectious diseases, I had a patient come in and uh, he gave me the flu. Um, but I had been vaccinated. Like I knew exactly because I got the same strain of flu that he did. So I knew exactly who gave it to me. And I mean, I was pretty sick. I felt pretty bad, but I felt bad for two days and I was at home and I could, you know, could stay home, study, read, do things. That guy ended up in the ICU, right? Because he, and I, I had offered him the vaccine a month ago and he said no to me. So this is a really good example of what happens. You know, I took the shot. He didn't take the shot. We had the same virus. We were close to the same age. He ended up in the ICU. I stayed at home. Mm-hmm. And the same things happen with COVID now, right? You know, if you, you can still get infected with, uh, if you're boosted, you know, I think your, your risk goes down about 70, uh, your risk is, I think, reduced by about 75% if you're boosted, um, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to if you were unvaccinated. But, um, but I think the more important thing is that your experience of illness is much better. Your risk of long COVID, as, uh, as Anne just said, mentioned, was halved, essentially. And so all of these things make it very palatable to go ahead and get boosted. I made sure my parents were boosted the first time, first chance they got. Um, and so, you know, I encourage you all to do the same. There is really no conspiracy around it. Nobody, I'm not making any money telling anybody to get boosted. Uh, I deliberately did not invest in Moderna or Pfizer um, <laughs> because I didn't want to have the conflict of interest. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I could have made a lot of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> From the beginning. <laughs> you know, I think that's, uh, and I, there actually, there's a nice picture, in fact, uh, that I shared with you. Uh, and I think what's really that's a really great picture because what it shows is that until Omicron came on the scene, the the vaccines having at least two doses of the vaccine was actually even very good against preventing the infection. But with Omicron, unfortunately, that calculus has changed, and you can get infected um, uh, with the vaccine. But still, you know, I think that that benefit in terms of preventing hospitalization and deaths, that benefit continues to be there. And so I think that is the big take home that even if you do get infected, you won't get that sick, right? And then vaccines are really not the first line of defense against mm-hmm. COVID. The, the first line of defense is wearing a mask, avoiding the crowds, avoiding um, sort of closed indoor situations if you can, especially if you're vulnerable. That is the first yeah. line of defense. And then, you know, in God forbid, you know, if some viral particles get through your mask, you know, then your vaccine can handle them. Um, Again, like I encourage people not to think in a binary way, you know, like it's not all the same. Mm-hmm. If I, you know, if Anne had COVID right now and you're going to sit and do this talk together without masks in a closed indoor environment, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm getting a very heavy like dose of viral inoculum from her in this period of time. So maybe my my vaccine couldn't handle that. But if we were both masked and if I got maybe 100 viral particles under my mask, my vaccine would be able to handle that. Mm-hmm. So that is the way to think about it is that it, it reduces the risk, but it doesn't eliminate it. Just like wearing a seatbelt reduces the risk of dying in a car accident. But if you're going to drive 100 miles an hour on the wrong side of the highway, you know, you could still have a pretty bad outcome, even if you're wearing a seatbelt. So that's the way people need to start thinking about it, not in a sort of a binary way. Sounds good. Sounds good. So, Dr. So, Pranel, here's the picture that you shared with us. Um, is there anything else that you would like to tell our viewers? What is this all about in connection to boosters? 
Yeah, well, this is this is uh, the image I shared from you from Ontario in in Canada, and really, I think that black line is exactly that line uh, of infections, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see that come December, like the benefit um, of uh, preventing infection on on the y-axis, on the vertical axis, there you've got the protection that the vaccine offered you, and you saw that protection against the against infection dropped dramatically when Omicron came on the scene. It's coming back up again. Um, but yeah. you know the protection with the with the vaccines is coming back up. I think probably as more people get their third doses, but um, but the red and the orange lines are the critical lines. We see that even with Omicron, you know the the protection never really dropped below eighty percent. Um, so that these vaccines continue to be vaccines and boosters continue to be very important to prevent you, you from dying and being hospitalized of, of COVID. And it is not a pleasant experience. People have a lot of psychological side, side effects as well as other side effects um, uh, from being uh, that sick with COVID. So yeah, that's pretty much what I have to say about that picture. Great. Thanks, Dr. Pranay. All right, let's move on to the next question right here because there are some commentators out there that suggested that we should definitely welcome the Omicron infection and allow it to really immunize ourselves against COVID. So what are your thoughts? Are there any downsides to this approach? I mean, much like to your flu um, you know, story earlier. So. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was on, I was on, I was working in the hospital on Christmas, taking care of COVID patients, and somebody told me that Omicron was my COVID, my, was my Christmas present. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, this is a bad idea that refuses to die. And actually, these ideas are called the zombie ideas because they just, you know, they sort of like just go around society and, and sort of um, somehow have a second life and third life and fourth life. And so, you know, just to explain the thinking of the people, you know, it's not a crazy thought. I, I get where this comes from. So the idea is that if all of us just went out there and got COVID, we'd, we'd let COVID wash over society, you know, we'd all get natural immunity and herd immunity, and then we could move on with our lives. It's a very right. tempting idea, right? Like it's it's so tempting, it's so like logical and simple and seems like common sense, right? And actually the UK tried this and it went and it really badly for them. So, you know, just think back to what Anne said, right? You just a little while we got long COVID. How horrible does it sound to have months, possibly years, of brain fog? You know, not to be able to breathe properly um, after having a mild respiratory infection, like for your, the rest of your life. In fact, they found in footballers, people who play like, and by football I mean soccer, which is a real football, not American football. Uh, so. Um, Right, because I'm in the Commonwealth. That's the football I play. Uh, the American football is what I call hand egg. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> so uh, but if you look at even elite footballers who are like, you know, so much fitter than the average person, uh, months after they were infected, um, even with mild symptoms, uh, they were not able to play the same level. They were not able to play as many minutes, make as many passes, make as many goals. And so that tells you just that there's a very serious consequence from being infected, even if it's a mild infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some people, not everybody, in some people. So uh, that's one reason why we shouldn't just let it wash all over us. Similarly, you have no idea if you're going to be that lucky person who ends up in the ICU. You have no idea. Like It is a little unpredictable, especially when your age gets above 65. You don't know if you'll have a mild case or you'll have a very severe case, and I've seen both. So this is another reason why you don't want to let COVID washing over society. 
additionally, like I think people forget that COVID is not the only disease in the world. You know, people have mm-hmm. severe asthma, people have COPD, people have heart conditions, kidney conditions, liver conditions. And these are the people in whom even a very mild infection can decompensate these other diseases that they have and land them in the hospital. And uh, so when a bunch of them start landing up in the hospital with these kind of things, it becomes really hard to manage them. And unfortunately, they have bad outcomes. People die. Um, and again, I saw this over and over again when I was on um, uh, hospital service just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So and again, as I said, Omicron is milder, but it's not mild. Right. right it's not like right. it's not nothing. And there was somebody really smart at Harvard who just said, uh, you know, if every single person in the world got the common cold all on the same day, there'd be pretty dire outcomes from that. You can imagine. You don't want your surgeon operating on you with a, with a mild cold. You don't want, like, your, your pilot, like, having a headache mm-hmm. as he flies. You know, it's, so, you know, there is a consequence to letting even a very, very mild infection wash over society. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we don't know if the natural immunity lasts forever. We don't know that. Um, and in fact, if it, if for some of the studies that I've seen, like the people who had like longer lasting immunities were the people who ended up in the hospital and ended up in the ICU. People with milder infections, they did not have long lasting immunities. And even the really um, in, uh, optimistic people end up saying that uh, that even if you get a mild infection, you should still get a booster dose um, to sort of prevent. So ultimately, vaccination is just so much safer than natural infection to build immunity and we have by god's grace ended up with like an incredible vaccine that has you know people say it's been rushed no it's been it's actually had really really good um analyses and trials uh and i was not expecting to happen this fast but i'm pretty convinced that it it is it does work and it's fairly safe so essentially for me with such a safe vaccine on the scene it makes no sense to go out and get a natural infection um, uh, to to get infected. And from a healthcare perspective, you know, like, you know, we've been living the nightmare for the last two years of like people piling up in a hospital um, with COVID. Like, you know, we just don't get a break. We've been so tired. Uh, healthcare workers are getting really, really depressed and burnt out from this um, um, experience. Um, because, you know, I'll put, I'll put in a way that uh, that educators will understand, which is um, let's assume that every single child in your class, every single child in your classroom, maybe 40 children in your classroom is going to have a tantrum at some point in the year. Would you want those tantrums to be spaced out over the space of the year so you can handle them one at a time? Or would you mm-hmm. want ev- all 40 students to sort of throw a tantrum simultaneously on the same day? Right. Which would be more draining for you? Yes. And and yes. that that's what it's like for us. You know, it's just uh, we need to sort of flatten the curve. Uh, and the way to do that is to not just go out and let COVID uh, wash uh, wash over us. Um, there's a there's a social contract that exists between uh, healthcare workers and the public, which is we it's a privilege to do what we do. We love our jobs. We really do. Um, and, you know, taking care of people like this, we've trained for years to do this and, and we love this but still you know i think there's also a responsibility for the public to sort of do the best they can to not get sick and not pass the buck on to us um and uh, if you know if people continue to be reckless and the cases remain like this uh, and we get maligned uh, in public you know people say pretty bad things somebody told me that i'm deliberately killing people with covid to make numbers look worse and i'm like oh, what do i say to you like what do i say to somebody like that so um you know i think if this continues and we are seeing healthcare workers get burnt out and leave the profession and so you know 
if things the trend goes on, there may be a day when nobody's there to help you with your mild COVID, and that's a nightmare, right? So, um, so you know, these are things to be thought about as we sort of. Uh, it's a meretricious idea. It seems very attractive when you think on the face of it. Oh, let's just wash it over. We'll all get national immunity. But when you think about the specifics, then you realize that this is a really, really bad idea with huge cost to society. That's right. That's right. I really want to thank you for your service to the public and your service to me, my family, everyone else, because without you, the doctors, you know, we, we are not going to be where we are right now when it comes to combating this uh, pandemic. So um, before we break, I want to have one more question to either one of you. And it's all about masks. All right. So um, do you think masks works against Omicron? And how can we keep ourselves safe? And I know this is also a burning question, right? Um, among our teachers. And how long do you think, uh, you know, we need to wear masks? Let's talk about this. Yeah, that's a great question. And so uh, right now on your screen is a table and that gives us some solid information on the effectiveness on masks. As you can see in the table, if you have an infectious person um, on the left, um, if they wear nothing and then on a person who is not infected is wearing nothing and that's on the top, the time it takes to transmit an infectious dose of COVID-19 only takes 15 minutes. And that's the uh, top left um, corner. However, if an infected person is wearing an N95 and a not infected person is wearing an N95, it can take 25 hours. That's the, the other end of the extreme at the bottom right corner. And so in general, um, this is really mindful because the more the it shows how important and it makes quite clear why wearing masks is important for both personal safety and social responsibility. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone should go and wear N95, but it also uh, breaks it down in this table. You know what the time it takes uh, to infect someone with cloth masks and with surgical masks in combinations of the two. Um, so it's no wonder why in the, you know, many Asian cultures it's considered quite impolite to not wear a mask, you know, during the height of viral season. And then COVID, of course, has raised the stakes now. So this table, just to keep in mind, was compiled in the spring of 2021. And so a lot of the data is pertinent to the Delta variant. Omicron, of course, it's much more infectious. And so the time that it takes to transmit is probably much shorter. Uh, and but to go back to your question, masks do work against Omicron. You just have to uh, up your mask game, essentially. So we have here for uh, demonstration some some masks that we'd like to go over. Okay, um, great. So I have um, a surgical mask here. Um, and surgical masks in general are not as good because too much air floats in through the gaps and on the sides. So as you can see, you know, there are there is some um gaps okay. here yeah uh-huh and on the sides as well and cloth masks unfortunately are not as effective now as well so that's why we actually recommend double masking so here i have a a cloth mask mm -hmm. and so if you have the surgical mask underneath your cloth mask this significantly reduces the gaps and you can okay. actually feel quite a good seal in the mask mm-hmm so, you know, in, in general, N95s are great, but you have to be reasonable. 
N95 right. that I see here, they're not comfortable for long periods of time. And ultimately what ends up happening is you end up fidgeting with them and actually breaking the seal. So you think you're protected when you're not. Um, and they can make a lot of marks on your face and you know they're not readily available as well. So if we had to conclude, um, best is enemy of good with a good surgical mask and cloth mask, that combination, you can make a pretty good seal. Um, we do get a lot of complaints about sometimes how, you know, even with cloth mask, surgical mask, um, the ears can hurt quite a bit. And mm -hmm. so we also have a ear protector that you can see here. Ah, oh, okay. Got it. And so how this happens is so you just slip it on and instead of having to loop it on your ears, it just hooks onto the back. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's much more comfortable. And now I actually have a, a pretty good seal as well. Um, so these are uh, three options we've gone over, surgical masks, cloth masks, and N95s. Uh, another fourth option is actually a KN95. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so this is from China, the KN95s. Mm -hmm. and, and the, and these can give up to 90 to 95% filtration, okay? Mm -hmm. um, a, a fifth option is what Pernay is wearing, which is the KF94. Mm -hmm. um, these are actually a South Korean option for KN95s, which are still along the same filtration of 90 to 95%. And you know, this is actually well, much more comfortable and ha provides, you know, great protection. It's my favorite. It's his favorite, actually. Mine too. Um, <laughs> it looks good too, very well, stylish. A couple of things I'll point out just quickly. You can see if I take a deep breath, you see the mask is going in and out. That right. means that you have a good seal. That, that, that tells you that you have a good seal. And what I like about KF94, I think for teachers, for doctors, you know, our jobs require to speak a lot. You can see that I'm speaking with this mask. I don't sound that muffled. Mm -hmm. And that's because the mask has structure and it, it's away from my lips. So you, it doesn't muffle me so much. You can speak to students without sort of feeling limited by the mask. Um, and that's, that's what I really like. Ahead, yeah, no, and the important thing is always make sure you have a good seal, that it's tight around your nose, that you breathe in deeply and out to, to have a good form around your face, and then to make sure there's no leakage or gaps around your face. Um, for men, um, having beards can greatly reduce the filtration of the mask because you can't form a good seal. So if it's an option for men, you know, really consider shaving your beard when at high risk for exposures. And alternatively, you can also consider a powered air purifying respirator. So, but those can be very, very clunky to and wear. Expensive. And inexpensive, exactly. That's why I shaved my beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good compromise, Dr. Frenet. All right. <laughs> Dr. Ann, thank you for explaining all those different options for our mask. So for our reviewers, if you have any comments or any questions, plug them in. We're going to take a quick break and we'll see if we can take one or two of the questions from the viewers later that Dr. N or Dr. Pernay can answer. All right, folks, let's take a break.
a live stream platform of online shows for people on the go. Please watch all our shows to see on screen. Imagine having your own show, your own playlist, your own content, but we make it easier for you. TNC aims to transform the lives of our viewers through engaging, authentic, and original content. Our vision is to become a global 24 over 7 live stream channel that showcases Filipino talent, global influencers, cultural intelligence, and ingenuity. Please continue to support and watch Once a Teacher, Always a Teacher on selected Saturdays, 10.30 in the morning Eastern Standard Time. You can also watch live or on replay via Facebook or YouTube. Follow us on IG. Listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search hashtag TNC now. All right, folks, welcome back. Thank you for plugging in your comments on the comments section while you're watching um, our wonderful conversation with Dr. Pranay and Dr. Ann. Um, so let's get back into conversation. Let's bring in back uh, uh, Dr. Pranay and Dr. Ann. Hi again. Hey. All right. So Dr. Pranay and Dr. Ann, uh, we have a question here or a comment from one of our viewers. It's from Ange Kabukit. And uh, uh, what's written right here is this one. Hello, Alpha, Dr. Lewin, Dr. Sinha. My partner and I re recently recovered from COVID. I do have comorbidities, diabetes, and high blood pressure. I noticed that two days before I confirmed I was COVID positive, my blood pressure and blood sugar levels shot up to alarming levels. Can you please talk more about the effects of the virus for people with comorbidities? Great question. Uh, no, that's a wonderful question. I'm I hope you're feeling better, um, both you and your partner. Uh, I'm sorry I had to go through that. Uh, so uh, that, you know, I think what you describe is a, is a very notable observation. Uh, when our body is fighting the infection, any infection, uh, whether it is tuberculosis or influenza or the common cold, uh, it releases um, chemicals and uh, biological signals that, that change our biology. You know, that sort of, uh, there's increase in stress hormones that are produced. And that's probably why your sugar starts spiking um, because when the body's under stress, it releases a lot of sugar and, and your control is, is not really there. So that, that probably, that explains that. And same with your blood pressure, you know, a lot of these stress hormones also increase blood pressure. And this is exactly why I was talking about earlier that, you know, COVID is not the only disease in the world. And so when people with conditions like yours, diabetes, hypertension, they get COVID, um, they have a harder time because <clears throat> their other conditions get out of control. Their blood pressure rises, their diabetes loses control. Also, some of the medicines that we use to treat COVID, for example, dexamethasone, will make your sugars go crazy. And so these are serious con uh, considerations for people who have other comorbidities. Uh, people who are really, really high at risk are people who have uh, end-stage kidney disease. Uh, they do very, very poorly with uh, with COVID because COVID doesn't just affect the lungs. It's COVID is actually a disease of the blood vessels because it can attach itself to the in, inner lining of the blood vessels, and so it can it can provoke 
um, uh, some you know really bad flares in your kidney injury, for example, that can that can actually result in need for dialysis, and and people who go into dialysis don't do really well with COVID. Um, so these are some of the things that that we see quite often. And again, this is why, like you know, my parents have both diabetes and heart disease, and I told them you cannot afford to get sick uh, with COVID. This is going to end badly. Um, so um, those are some of the thoughts that I wanted to share, um, and that's a really important question that you bring up. So thank you for asking. Great, thank you, Dr. Panay. So um, we would love to continue this conversation. We have a lot of questions, but let's see. Let's. Uh, I think we can tackle more, like two or three questions, right? So let's see. Um, the next question that we'd like to ask both of you is, what do you see as the possible long-term effects of COVID to the society? And maybe talk also about this term, like interpandemic, if you can. Uh, sure, I can take that one. Uh, so, you know, obviously I don't have a crystal ball and I can't uh, predict uh, what's gonna happen. But uh, in this morning, I'm in a good mood because I'm with my wife and so I'll be optimistic. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think uh, COVID really, I hope that the human race takes COVID as an invitation to think about our perverted relationship with nature. You know, um, there were all these ridiculous ideas about lab leak in Wuhan that resulted in COVID. No, I think really, I think we've seen this before. Uh, we've seen a lot of epidemics emerge from um, you know our interaction with uh, with nature, so the plague, uh, for example, which killed seventy five to two hundred million people in Europe in the thirteen hundreds, um, that came from from mice, right? That um, that that the, the flea from the mice had the bacteria that just spread rapidly through Europe, and that time we didn't have antibiotics. Uh, Ebola spread because um, because um, people were hunting uh, primates like gorillas and chimpanzees in Central Africa, and uh, and they had they carried the virus and the virus sort of skipped over. Same thing with SARS in 2003. That came from bats, bats via palm civets, which are eaten uh, in China, and and that made its way into humans. And MERS, which is another coronavirus in in, in sort of um, the Middle East, uh, that also came from bats and now has a host in, in the camels. And so similarly, I think uh, this. Coronavirus also probably came from bats. In fact, we know that there are many other coronaviruses that are, you know, ha undergoing genetic changes that allow them to jump from bats into humans. Um, and so we're going to see more and more of this if we keep deforesting, um, uh, you know, the world and, and living closer and closer to sort of animals and allowing their viruses to sort of uh, find their way into us. HIV also, by the way, came from uh, from uh, monkeys, uh, from, from primates into into humans. So that it just makes us think we should be more thoughtful about this deforestation, animal welfare. Um, these are things that we need to be thinking a little bit more about. Also, uh, we should be thinking, you know, I think the field of epidemiology, which you see epidemiologists on TV all the time now, the field of epidemiology really came in because there was diarrheal disease like cholera that was killing people all over the place. And it made us think, that, you know, most the reason we live so long now is not because doctors are so amazing or that we have antibiotics. <laughs> it's because, uh, you know, the public health infrastructure extends from us to the person who takes away your garbage. 
you know, sanitation is such a critical component of, of public health. And I think there was a lot of attention paid in the 19th century and the 20th century to uh, clean water. In the same way, I think we are now going to have to think about clean air. The air that we breathe in, um, in sort of the schools that we are in, the restaurants that we are in, and so on and so forth. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I really hope that there are going to be new standards for uh, for HEPA filtration of air in classrooms. I was actually just reviewing them right now, and there are no standards really for for biological. Um, uh, filtration in classrooms. And uh, that is going to be the next step. And Anne's going to talk a little bit probably later about sort of what, you know, how we can sort of change the future for the classroom so we don't have to be in, the ma in masks all the time. But yeah, I don't think that COVID has to look like the Black Plague, which killed 200 million people over seven years in Europe um, uh, in the 1300s. I think we're going to, you know, if we, we can change the, the, the pandemic today is not what it was in March 2020 because mm -hmm. we can get vaccinated, that far lowers the stakes of getting infected. It doesn't mean that you'll die immediately. It means that, you know, you could probably survive it uh, with good health. Um, and so uh, other things are frequent testing. I was just in Abu Dhabi, uh, which is amazing. I was there for uh, important reasons, not like joy, joy rides, <laughs> because I don't want to encourage people uh, to travel uselessly. But, uh, you know, people were being tested regularly. Every three days, they were, being, we were doing PCR tests. We had rapid antigen tests that we could do. So uh, these are ways that we can sort of prevent the, the, you know, we can sort of, you know, sort of put roadblocks uh, for the pandemic and not allow it to just wash over us and destroy us. And then, you know, I think um, there's this idea of circuit breakers, you know, mm -hmm. so um, there will be, uh, there'll be this, and this comes to your idea of the interpandemic that we live between surges. And, and I think that that is potentially true. You know, viruses have seasonality to them. Um, influenza definitely does. Um, so I think what we might have to do is, uh, as a society, really monitor for, um, you know, what the viral activity is. And if the levels are shooting up, then um, then we should be sort of taking measures. We should be sort of shutting down areas where transmission is the most. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, there are some studies, there are lots of studies that sort of have corroborated all the same thing, that the worst place that you want to be if you want to avoid COVID is eating indoors in a restaurant or a bar. Because you can imagine the scene, like it's closed, there's no filtration, right? And people are yelling at each other over the music. Uh, and they're like leaning in close to hear what the other person is saying. These are all the ways to sort of optimize transmission of COVID, right? So that's this. So, you know, uh, these are the kind of places where you really want to sort of shut down. Uh, gyms, you don't need to work out all the time, but you do want your children to be in the school. So we need to prioritize in moments of surges. We need to prioritize what's important. Hospitals are important. Schools are important important daycare is important so um you know we should shut down the bars keep the schools open that's sort of how we would live and as i said we don't have a crystal ball but that picture that was just flashed there was actually um the wastewater rna levels of covid so we actually monitor for the amount of covid in sewage water and it has actually been a wonderful predictor of um you know the community-wide infections because when you know when you have covid you will excrete covid in your stool and the stool makes it into the sewage and then you can count it over there and so it gives us a heads up about what's going to happen so i think those are the kind of metrics that we can use to predict oh my god in two weeks there's going to be a high 
um, you know, sort of amount of COVID in the community. So we should at this time start shutting down indoor dining. And then when that number comes down, then we can reopen it again. Um, the other number that I think really matters here is uh, the number of available and staffed hospital beds. You know, uh, and if you're finding the hospitals getting overwhelmed, that's another reason to sort of maybe sort of invoke a circuit breaker and maybe sort of shut down, um, you know, parts of society and prevent like, you know, not have like huge concerts where everybody's screaming and giving each other COVID. So and then again, prioritize schools, keep schools open uh, and in schools, you know, maybe put on masks and so on and be careful. So I feel like that is potentially the future that we see over the next few years. And then really like sanitizing the air, improving the quality, using newer, smaller, more efficient air purifiers so that, you know, even if there is somebody who's infected, the transmission is much lower um, in, in crowded areas. So these are, these are some of the things that I think uh, we're going to see in the future. That's great. Thanks, Dr. Bernane. Thanks, Dr. All right, uh, we have one last question um, to either one of you. What do you think would be your advice to educators in dealing with COVID-19 as it relates to the overall instruction? I know Dr. Bernane talked a little bit in terms of some of the things that we should be looking for and doing in the future, but any other advice? And the lights are like flickering. I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to have our electricity, right? Anyway, that's the last question. <laughs> she doesn't consent off tigerish debates. Some groups never want to remove masks from schools and others can't wait to rip them off. So we really have to weigh the benefits of masks from the harms. Uh, for language development, growth of social, emotional intelligence, and so many other reasons, it's important to stop using masks. But for all the reasons I mentioned above, for example, the risk of long COVID, which can permanently damage a child's potential, we don't want to be cavalier about removing masks. So the scenario in which masks can go away would include three of the following. One, vaccines become available for all ages. We're nearly there. Two, there's regular testing of children and teachers when the virus is surging. And so this should be every three days with the PCR test or even daily with the rapid antigen test right before going to school. Yeah. And then three, improved air quality in schools to reduce super spreader events. And, uh, you know, Pune can elaborate on this more. But basically, I could also see foresee not having masks most of the year and then reinstituting them for periods when the circulating virus levels are super high. And these decisions, these kinds of decisions really need to be made using evidence and should never be made recklessly or out of irrational fear. Pune, do you have some things to add to that? No, that's pretty much it. I think you may notice that recommendations change. And I think uh, the only point I would want to add on here, and, and I feel like this is something that I, I really wish that educators highlighted, uh, which is the conception of science. You know, on the on the internet, you always read articles saying, oh, science says, or science has proven. And science doesn't do any of those things, right? Science is not the truth. Science is our attempt to get at the truth. And so what we believe today may not be true tomorrow based on new data. And I think science requires an openness to doubt the existing knowledge 
and like to change it and replace it with something new and act accordingly. And I think what what people have really struggled with throughout the pandemic is changing recommendations. And I think some of them we can definitely flaw the CDC and other people for. But overall, I think part of the people's hesitance um, to believe in experts uh, is this idea that they don't really have a good relationship with science. They don't really understand what that is. Um, and I think the idea that you know what is known today will change may change tomorrow when we have more data uh, and hopefully will change because otherwise you will still be stuck with the science of like you know the 12th century where the most advanced thing was the wheel right mm -hmm. and so uh that's that's i think something that i feel like educators really need to sort of stress mm -hmm. and those are the kind of things that need to drive our conversations mm -hmm. about what we do in schools and how we keep our educators who are so critical are essential workers keep them safe keep our children safe and make sure that you know we don't have a, a lost generation because of covid wonderful points dr pranay and dr ann this has been a wonderful hour with you and i want to thank both of you for spending um you know this time with us and uh, with our viewers i can't believe we've been talking for an hour and we, I wish we have more time on air to, you know, ask you questions. But anyhow, uh, I'm sure a lot of our viewers and our educators and school leaders may want to get in touch with you. How can they get in touch with you if they have burning questions about COVID-19? I think we're both pretty active on Twitter, so you could you could tweet at us. <laughs> All right, and Twitter handle is. There you go. Okay, at doc, uh, at Pranay underscore MD for Dr. Pranay, and for Dr. Ann, Ann, Ann Lou underscore MD. All right, folks. Well, um, to our viewers and our everybody who's with us this morning, thank you very much. Please continue to follow or follow Drs. Pranay and Dr. Ann on Twitter if you have other questions when it comes to COVID. And we hope that in the next few weeks, the surge on the Omicron is going to continue to flatten, and it requires all of us to participate in flattening the curve. And what did you say, Dr. Pranay, in terms of that? Sanitize? What was it? You had three things. <laughs> Wash your hands. <laughs> okay. Wear a mask. Avoid crowds. There you go. Wonderful. That said, we're going to end this morning's Once a Teacher, Always a Teacher. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Spernay and Dr. Ann, for your time. And I'll see you around in the neighborhood. You will. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now.